The reason we're in the situation we're in is because everyone has been voting the lesser of two evils for so long. Uh, it's important to have a new party, and it's important, therefore, to get these independent candidates to 5%. Everything that I care about, I'm worried about the wars, I'm worried about Syria, I'm worried about all of these things that actually exist. TPP, I'm worried about fracking, I'm worried about the environment. No matter who gets in, they don't address these things right. because money has taken over our system. So for me, it doesn't matter. A lot of women of, of, of your generation may take the view that is actually quite a big thing for the United States to elect a a woman president. I, I want the right woman, but I don't vote with my vagina, you know. What the hell is that? What would you say you do here? It's Stone's Weekly Dose. Because I'm kind of an idiot. I'm a dumb guy. Brian, you don't have to keep trying so hard to impress me. I already really like you. Your midweek download destination. I told you about Brian. I told you. Come on, man. Brian was just making a joke. I'm so lucky to have met you, Brian. You're such an amazing guy. It's Stone's Weekly Dose. Note to self, don't change for anyone. And note to self, don't vote with your vagina or your penis either. Or And uh, don't die also. Welcome into the Stone On Air podcast on time this week. It's the 21st of August. That was Susan Sarandon who was trending the other day and there's only three reasons you trend it's either your birthday you're dead or you're in trouble i don't know which one she is she's not dead it's not her birthday i'm in really trouble either but it really is the case um for people who regularly use twitter that when you see somebody trending your first thoughts are just that, oh, hell, are they in jail? And if it's like Betty White, oh, geez, is she dead? <laughs> you know, right? Is it, uh, uh, why, is it Nick Nolte? Oh, he's drunken in jail. It's John Daly. He must have woke up drunk in a Hooters parking lot. Or he might be dead. <laughs> he would fall into that category as well. So Susan Sarandon was, um, trending the other day and I all the woke types or well no hold on let me get that no she's more on the woke side all the uh never trump types that's right I got that wrong uh, all the never trump types which I am you know close to a never trump but uh just pissed off as they could be because she is actually she sticks to her beliefs and doesn't budge for them which I can uh, absolutely if nothing else, respect it. I have trouble with it to a certain degree because I would like to just do whatever it takes to get uh, Don Trump out of there. And uh, I'm beginning to think more and more that all my chatter about Biden being the only one that can do it is maybe not all that factual, but not because I see somebody else who can. I'm closer to thinking that nobody can. But anyway, she's continuing to double down from where she was at in 2016 as a Bernie supporter and third parties a way to go. And I don't care. None of them work for me. I don't know if she's a Trump is uh, Hillary. Hillary is Trump type because that is delusional. That's completely delusional. I don't care who you do or don't want to be president. Don Trump ain't Hillary Clinton and Hillary Clinton ain't Don Trump. And anybody who says they're the same is, is just somebody who's got some kind of weird worldview that I will uh, never completely understand. So I'll, uh, I might come back to that in a minute. I might not. I might save that for later on. 
down the road. Today is the 21st of August, and um, many months ago, my girlfriend bought me and her tickets to see Noel Gallagher from Oasis and the Smashing Pumpkins, primarily because I am just such a huge Oasis and Noel fan, and because we had discussed that I don't know, I don't think she's seen the Smashing Pumpkins. I know I haven't. And as a child and teenager of the 90s, not seeing Smashing Pumpkins is, uh, you know, I mean, my life will go on without it, but I think it would be better if I did see them. So she bought the tickets for me. I don't remember if it was, it wasn't for my birthday. It was just just a surprise kind of thing. And then we rolls into late August, and school's back in session, and we're trying to get up and take her kids to school, and I'm trying to get work done, and it's like, oh, damn it, damn it. We got to go to this show in Atlanta on a Wednesday. So it's been kind of hectic to put all this together. Uh, Tuesday, uh, the 20th, I recorded, let's see, seven hours of radio and one hour, depending on how long this goes, of the podcast. So that doesn't mean it took me that long, but it took me probably about three, four, four or five hours, all in between, before, during, and after the day job. So I'm a little tired and uh, ready to get to Atlanta. If we're going to do this, if we're going to go to Atlanta and have a, have, a, have a time and go to a Noel Gallagher and Smashing Pumpkins show, we might as well do it right. So coming up on the show today, let's see, third segment and final segment of the day, the Vols, as other SEC schools have done and all SEC schools, SEC schools will do eventually and all schools in the country, period, will eventually do, have added alcohol to their football and basketball stadiums. I will have a little bit of fun with talking about college football and booze in the final segment. In the second segment of the show, I'm going to try to tighten this up. I spent a lot of time on this, and I'm afraid it's boring. So if you get bored, just check out. But I'm looking at a complete timeline of Woodstock 50 and how it started and how it began, how it got to the middle, and how its demise. And it's just remarkable. I'm just fascinated slash borderline obsessed with the Woodstock brand. And this at this point, very negative on the Woodstock brand. I'm going to spend the second segment looking at that. My initial time put into that was looking like that was going to take a while. I'm going to try to keep that as brief as possible. But is uh, there's a comprehensive um, uh, uh, Rolling Stone piece from the last few days. Where in the hell is it? I mean, I know I've got it, but I'll I'll attribute it here in a little bit. Oh wait, there it is. Uh, it was one problem after another. Woodstock, how Woodstock '50 fell apart by David Brown and Corey Grow from. Rolling Stone magazine. I'll look at that in the second segment of the uh, of the of the podcast. And I was going to get into more from the white privilege thing of the um, at the Opportunity District in service day before school started that I talked about here a couple weeks ago. Roy Exum, of course, from the Chattanooga, got involved and did his opinion piece. Attacked Kathy a little bit. Maybe not tax the wrong word, but. Talked negatively anyway, and then also brought her husband, John Lennon, into it, who is from Howard School. I don't have enough on all that to go with it just yet, so I'm not going to do that right now, but it is on my radar, and I'm going to keep an eye on it. Um, What I'm um, beginning to realize as I continue to watch social media, as I transition into the first uh, uh, segment of this show today, which is going to have two very different feels here. Real quick here, uh, another thing I'll do later is talking about Susan Sarandon and all the mess I was seeing about, you know, all the attacks, uh, posts, and all those on Twitter and Facebook, mainly Twitter, but Facebook too, is I think I'm about I'm about this close. I've got my index finger and my thumb 
not an inch, we'll say closer to two inches. Let's say one inch and three quarters apart. So my my thumb and, and index finger are almost two inches apart. I'm about that close to saying, that's it. I'm done. I'm a libertarian. I am going to start practicing libertarianism. I am going to get away from this mess that is the lunacy of both parties, the fractured nature of both parties, the extreme, not so extreme, and um, and single issue voting types of the uh, of the two party system we have. And I, I I'm I'm that close. I'm that close from just abandoning it altogether and just saying, you know what? Screw all of y'all. Screw every one of you. Screw everybody. I've already started saying that about all the politicians who think they're doing some kind of service to the country, which they're not. I'm about to say that to everybody walking around. I don't want to offend anybody. I would like to keep my friends. You know, I don't want somebody to meet me for the first time and say, that guy's a jerk. But screw it. Screw all of it. I'm done. I'm a libertarian. Do your thing. I'll do mine. Don't harm anybody else. I won't harm anybody else. Get government out of my life completely. What the hell are we doing here? But I got to do a little bit more research on that before I defiantly say that. So the first thing I want to do on the show today is something, again, finding from a trend uh, trend on Twitter is something that reminded me very much of the... Um, and I'm not trying to make a big deal out of this, like, you know, compare myself to some kind of celebrities or some kind of national story. But it did make me think of, remember, was it about a year ago, maybe a little bit longer ago, when a local uh, rag, I don't remember if it's produced by the Chattanooga Times Free Press or not, but the City Dope magazine, City Scope, did the golden age of podcasting. And I don't know who, why, when, or who put that together, who is scratching who's back or not. I don't know. Chattanooga is a microcosm of the way that just the the, the country operates uh, from a really just boring, mass-produced uh, media all the way around. And they, uh, they, they listed some podcasts. One that wasn't even a podcast. It was a radio show that just, you know, was available to be listened to and streamed online. Then one or two people who had barely even had a show, and I'm not trying to demean anybody in their in their you know, their quest to try to have a, a creative outlet, but they're highlighting these shows that really have very little impact on 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 the on the area. And not to say any of the podcasts created in the city in the last three years have much impact, but two that were left off. Luckily, Brew Chat was left off. Friends of mine who have way more shows than me and been doing it for a couple of years longer than me. And I wasn't not I wasn't even consulted, let alone just left off. And it made me just like, what are we doing? The golden age of podcasts in the city of Chattanooga, who is late to everything, late to every single trend in the in the country. And one of the ones that's you know got a decent listenership, you don't even mention is there. You know, it rubbed me the wrong way. Well, this is what happened today. I see Conan O'Brien is trending. And so, again, like I said before, is, is it Conan's birthday? Is Conan in the hospital? Did Conan get arrested? No. Variety, from a national standpoint, did the same thing that City Dope magazine did. And from an uninformed angle, used I, probably because of a business deal, a backroom, back-scratching kind of situation of, hey, we're trying to push Conan's new podcast because it's not that old at all. It's very new. Uh, and hey, why don't you feature him in your revolution of podcasting? 
And while this is a very, very good article, actually, I'm going to read a little bit of it here in a minute, how Conan O'Brien and other top hosts are tapping into the podcast revolution. And then I move on to something else here in a minute before we get out of this first segment about, you know, are we oversaturated? With podcasts in the in the city, in the region, in the nation, any old asshole can do it. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes that just makes for a uh, an ocean of a mess of content. So how Conan O'Brien and other top hosts are tapping into the podcast revolution. So from Twitter, I just was having a blast with a lot of these responses. So I'm just going to read a handful here. It says cover story. Famous people start podcasts as an extension of their existing brand because podcasts became a mainstream thing like five years ago, and now there is corporate money involved. Another one says, as the host of an independent podcast, I always find it funny when old media, Conan, tries to take over the genre. The appeal of podcasts has always been listening to real people give their opinion, to get ideas that aren't cookie cutter made to appeal to the lowest denominator. Get the fuck out of here. Conan didn't do jack shit for transforming the niche medium. I'm sick of the garbage publications blatantly disregarding the work of people who actually do did something so they can push their mainstream trash in our faces on the places we left them for. What a terrible cover story. Podcasts have been around since the early 2000s, but Conan and other top hosts, quote-unquote, are being given credit. Shame on you, Variety. The weirdest thing about the Conan O'Brien podcast shit is that regardless of how you feel about them, Mark Marin and Bill Simmons have been doing the same damn format better and for longer. Those guys are pretty goddamn mainstream. This is from Twitter again. I have been listening to podcasts for well over a decade, and that was back when no one knew what a podcast was, and I've been doing one for about a decade as well. No, Conan did not revolutionize the podcast world. Podcasting created its own stars and never needed Conan. This is like doing a story about YouTube because Will Smith started a YouTube channel last year. Just a few more here. Podcasts have been quote-unquote hot for years, but you're going to give Conan O'Brien the credit? Imagine thinking podcasts weren't good until Conan. Oh, hey, look at the ads placed next to Variety's dumb story on Conan leading a podcast revolution. A story that also features inane and nonsensical quotes from the luminary dude. Hmm. If you look at the screenshot that they put on that Twitter, yes, down the right side on the the banner there, it's Team Coco, luminary dude or luminary guy or whatever it says, and it's Conan and it's Andy Richter and it's other TBS half-wits, dim-wits they're trying to push. Again, you see where this is coming from. Hey, let's do a big, in-depth, comprehensive story on podcasting and we'll put Conan O'Brien as one of the revolutionizers because we'll give you money and kickbacks and barters. That's me talking. Let's see. Just a couple more. Uh, Let's see. I've been a fan of Conan since I was an actual child, but God damn it, it sucks to see him get credit when people I know have actually revolutionized podcasting and years before he even attempted to do one. So grateful to Conan O'Brien for helping to invent podcasting. (laughs) And the final one. It's like saying Conan helped start late night television. Total Bullshit. 
I like it. I like it. It's good. Uh, this is actually a very in-depth, good article that I, I implore you to, to, to take a look at in spite of its kind of fraudulent nature of its headline. It talks about the, uh, the industry, how many companies like Intercom Communications, who owns locally here Rock 105, US 101, uh, iHeartMedia, who used to own and then sold off to Intercom, how they've been buying up a lot of networks all over the, uh, the country uh, that are uh, podcast content producers. Apple is said to be looking to get into funding original podcasts. Uh, let the, the, I'll save that one here for a minute, talking about dollars that you can make doing it. U.S. Weekly Podcast listeners in 2013, there was 19 million listeners, making up 7% of the total population of the country. 2013. When I officially started doing this uh, as a standalone outside of the uh, radio industry in 2016, there was quite a s- substantial amount more, almost double, 36 million taking up 13% or making up 13% of the total population. And to that point, from then till now, it's almost doubled again. 62 million podcast listeners, 22% of the population. It is undoubtedly becoming a real uh, part of day-to-day, in-and-out life. It's having the exact same problem blogs and the Internet had to begin with. This is free. This doesn't cost anything for anybody. And it and I like that base model because, hell, you got to be a damn uh, pretty strong rock star to have anybody pay you for um, for your work. And it's almost like, oh, well, hell, we've been giving it away for so long. Same thing the newspapers are having to deal with. Same thing uh, the, the radio station. Everybody's having to deal with. How do we monetize something we that we've been giving away for free? Uh, one last thing here from a blog, or not a blog, just a piece, I don't know, whatever, uh, that I got from New York Times. I've been sitting on it. It was from July 18th, so about a month ago. The headline is, her name is Jennifer Miller, who wrote it from the New York Times. Have we hit a peak with podcasting? It says, there are now upward of 700,000 podcasts, according to the podcast production and hosting service, Blueberry, with between 2,000 and 3,000 new shows launching each month. Being a podcast host plays into people's self-importance, says Karen North, a clinical professor of communication at the Annensburg School for Communication and Journalism at the University of Southern California. What? Hold on. Wait. What is her title? A clinical professor of communication at the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism at the University of Southern California. All right, whatever. Uh, She goes on to say, the thing about podcasts is it's very, very hard to determine popularity. It's easy for the host to appear to be an influencer and whether anybody finds that podcast or listens to it and the bounce rate, who really knows? There is no available data comparing podcast formats, such as how many interview shows exist and how many other news programs or narrative or are, that are news programs or narrative journalism. But industry analysts and production companies say that so-called banter cast, in which the hosts and guests chit chat for an hour or more, likely comprise the bulk of new productions. Think uh, all the TV show things, Walking Dead recaps, uh, Breaking Bad when it was a show recaps, whatever's popular now, those kinds of things. From Tom Webster, Senior Vice President of Edison Research, so many of these are just painful. We revere the great interviewers, but it's an incredible skill that very few people have. What did Terry Gross do before she had her own show? 
Well, she was an interviewer, not a marketer for a software company. That's a very good point. The average American commute is under half an hour, about 27 minutes, according to census data. So you've got to respect people's time. And they make a lot of different points in there. And one that I saved here from uh, the variety pieces, this is a company that's under Intercom's wing called Cadence 13, talking about the cost of these. And it says a simple interview program for this company with a 50, 55 employees can make a show, a podcast, for as little as $5,000 a year. Well, that's a hell of a budget when you're sitting here doing a show every single week and it costs zero dollars because I'm the only one doing it. If you even have five grand to add to the uh, to the budget, you can see where a lot of these production companies can make really good uh, content. It's just how do you get people to listen to it? Then it goes on to say higher end productions such as blank, 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 all these ones I haven't heard of run in the mid six figures. Six figures a year to put together these uh, th- these audio pieces that we call podcasts. Take that audience and put it against what we feel like we can get on a CPM, is what the quote ended up with there is, referring to advertising costs per thousand impressions. This is what I liked about this and why I highlighted it and pulled it out of a nearly 20-page piece. CPM, cost per thousand impressions. CPM rates for podcasts range from $10 to $50. It could be more for more coveted shows, Radio CPMs, by contrast, are as low as $2 to $3, although radio usually has a broader audience than podcasts do. And that's all I'll do on numbers of that. I don't want to bore you to death. I'm already afraid I'm going to bore you all uh, day long on this one anyway. Uh, The difference is radio makes those numbers up. Radio, those numbers cannot be uh, authenticated. They're done through diaries, and then they're uh, multiplied by population and by wattage and signal strength and and uh, all those things. And it's it's a made up number. It's not real. Podcasting is it's and it's not rock solid perfect, but it's a much greater, easier way to measure how many listeners are, and it's also a way to humble the shit out of you when you think you got a lot of listeners and the numbers actually don't show that you do. But the podcast listening um, audience is fiercely loyal, fiercely more loyal than a radio audience is. Most uh, metrics show me. All right, so I'm going to get out here, going to take a look at the timeline of Woodstock 50's demise from uh, early 17, a mention, to late 18 through the first seven months of this year and how that just just disaster of a concept fell apart. And at the end, we'll take a look at UT uh, sports and football and basketball uh, putting alcohol in their stadium. Maybe I'll actually go to a Vols game again one of these days. This is the Stone on Air podcast, the weekly dose for August 21st, 2019, and I will be right back. Stone on Air will be right back. This is cool. Stoneonair.com. The, the thing in the press right now is that the thing is not happening is because it's heartbreak. And it's negative. And if we know what gets clicks and what sells, that's negativity. I'd rather tell you what's exactly going on uh, than worry about getting a couple more clicks here or there. You know, that doesn't really matter to me. But that's, that is big time matters to a lot of the outlets that are pushing the narrative that the thing is canceled. It's easier to sell. Here's what Michael Lang had to say in an email to people who signed up for ticket updates. Dear Woodstock friends, it seems in a way that history is repeating itself. In July of 1969, we lost our sight in Wallkill, and with only a month to go, we managed to move to Bethel. Woodstock was going to happen no matter what. 
This time around, Woodstock's new home, Dick's and Watkins Glen, New York, and New York State have been really wonderful. I went door to door to the neighbors. Some remember summer jam back in '73, and were worried about history repeating itself. But they opened their doors to us, and we talked it out. Many of those people have reached out over the last 24 hours with messages of hope and encouragement. The venue, Watkins Glen International, have been totally supportive and professional. Yesterday, our financial partner, Dentsu Aegis, made the decision to pull out and informed us they were canceling the festival at the same time that they let the press release go. We have yet to understand why they would try to prevent the festival from happening by seemingly undermining us in this way. It is one thing to decide for oneself that it is best to move on, but it is entirely another thing to try and close the door on us. Back to the this is David Crosby with somebody else. By the time we got to Woodstock, we were half a million Recreated a decade ago or so. was a song and a celebration. Re-recorded. Rearranged, I should say. Dreamed I saw the bomber riding shotgun in the sky, turning into butterflies above our nation. We are stars. I know I might be uh, going a little overboard with the Woodstock stuff the last couple months. But the official 50 years was last week, August 14th through 17th, I believe. Back to the garden. And it's just something I have romanticized my entire life. I probably already talked about it. And I, I saw this piece from Rolling Stone the other, just the other day. It's dated the 18th. So at, at press time, at record time, at deadline, that was two days ago. It is one of the more comprehensive pieces I've read in Rolling Stone in a long, long, long damn time. It is, I don't know how many thousands of words, but many, many, many. I have a, at least, I'd say, 20 sheets of notes here that I'm going to try to motor through a little quicker because the more I was trying to put this uh, segment together, the more I realized, my goodness, <laughs> Does anybody want to hear all about this? Uh, but I, I loved. I was just, I was fascinated with uh, the breakdown of how everything went. It was one problem after another. How Woodstock '50 fell apart. So in 2017, that's when Michael Lang first started uh, looking at Watkins Glen International uh, Speedway in uh, New York as a, as a place for the festival. It had hosted. A, a, a festival called Summer Jam in 1973 where the estimations were 600,000 people were there. You know, hey, whatever. I, I don't know if I believe estimates from last week, let alone from, uh, you know, 47 years ago, but whatever. His thought is this place holds a lot. He had reached out to a company. It's a lot longer name. It's got a lot of, uh, uh, it's got a lot of tentacles in this financial capital, venture capital uh, investing company, but for the sake of the rest of this podcast and for everything I read, it's Dentsu, Dent S U, uh, uh, Dent S U, Dentsu. He reached out to them at uh, the end of 2017 to see if there was any funding available there. In November of 2018, Dentsu officially joined forces with the newly formed company Woodstock 50 LLC, which is put together by, is it Hotelier? It's, re- it's Restaurateur. Is it hotelier people who develop and uh, and like the Patels do around here? Either way, it's a couple of them. They get together. Michael Lang has the name of Woodstock. 
Uh, they they make the new venture called Woodstock 50 LLC, and it's a handful of people along with uh, the the financial company or the financial the capital for the uh, for the project Densu. Uh, as they get into this, here's the numbers they're throwing into. Woodstock 50's contract with Dentsu, they would contribute up to just shy of $50 million based on 150,000 tickets sold, with also $22 million coming from corporate sponsorships. Again, this just shy of $50 million was contingent on 150,000 tickets sold and $22 additional million from corporate uh, money. By December, just one month into the joint arrangement, December of 18, communication problems were already setting in. And it's, when it comes to the talent, when it comes to the lineup, Michael Lang, this guy, if you've listened to the past shows you've done, this he's one of the faces of the movie. He was the hippy-dippy kid of the four investors on the front end. He wasn't really an investor. He was more the guy who knew the music business, and he's been living off his name and destroying uh, brands and, and spending other people's money and more importantly, losing other people's money for the better part of 50 years. He wanted an incredible lineup, and uh, that was a big part of it, which was going to be very, very expensive. Uh, As the uh, next month goes along, trouble is being distinguished between um, anybody asking, between Watkins Glen, Woodstock 50 LLC, and uh, Dentsu on actually how many people can we actually put inside of Watkins Glen because the 600,000 number or even half of that wasn't looking uh, wasn't looking very uh, necessarily accurate at that point. January of this year, uh, Dentsu hires Superfly, who is the brains behind the production of Bonnaroo. Uh, here's what Michael Lang was thinking about, who projected an air of both openness and mystery said he envisioned these neighborhoods which would have curated food and music and entertainment experiences. There would be street actors, clowns, jugglers, and the like, along with a kind of drive-in or walk-in movie-type situation. There was talk of a live stream and a concert movie. Lang even said he had tracked down odor-free toilets, so he is thinking huge in early January of this year. The logistics of such an over uh, of an undertaking were becoming overwhelming. This is what Superfly was to do to make this happen. The organizers would have needed to construct new roads and bridges, lease extra land for parking, expand water systems, and create an entire backup water supply. Moreover, getting a mass gathering permit was essential as the Department of Health forbids people from advertising an overnight event of that size without a permit, which precluded Woodstock 50 from putting tickets on sale which they can't, obviously, now they can't put that out there and try to test the market and see where they're at and what kind of sales they're going to get until they get these permits. Back to the piece from Rolling Stone. According to Lang, these were not obstacles. We've known all this for years, he tells Rolling Stone. It's something we had to deal with for the 25th anniversary of the same mass gathering permits, so we've been through this before a couple of times. A lot of it is just busy work. Of course, Michael Lang thinks this is absolutely no big deal. He loves spending other people's money, or as I've mentioned before, wasting other people's money. After these comments come out, the COO of Dentsu says turning the racetrack into a city for three or five days would take, quote, a minimum of a year to 18 months. Remember, we're in January, eight months away. 
Toward the end of February, Woodstock 50 was still booking acts when the lineup was revealed at a Manhattan uh, press conference in March, an event that cost $120,000. It was actually a pretty impressive lineup, but a lot of money was going to all these artists, and there was still no venue at this point. We are still talking at right at the beginning of March. There was Jay-Z, The Killers, Chance the Rapper, Miley Cyrus, The Raconteurs, The Black Keys, Woodstock veterans like David Crosby, Joe McDonald, John Fogarty, Carlos uh, Santana, The Dead and Company, John Sebastian, and a lot of these artists, some of the more uh, contemporary ones like Jay-Z, The Killer, Miley Cyrus, and Santana, all each received at least a half a million dollars just for the commitment to, to play Woodstock 50 not even their overall amounts being paid for their performance. A lot of money was flowing out the door. Densu started to think that Woodstock was spending too much money and that the festival was forcing its hand to pay artists that Densu had, hadn't agreed to book. This is around early March. This is from the Woodstock 50 crew that comes from the hotel uh, hospitality folks that had teamed up with Michael Lang. A An email sent... In early March, we are partners here. They email to Dentsu. We are working our butts off. Susan and I are transforming our lives to make this work. Michael Lang has given his career and is giving it his all now to make this work. It will work. I guarantee it. But I can't guarantee a successful festival that you cancel. And we and that's all in bold right there and and upper uh, uppercase uh, font. And we are getting the capacity for 150,000 people. That's the biggest holdup here that is going to make this a huge problem. Partners with Woodstock 50 LLC are starting to question Superfly, which, oh yeah, by the way, are industry standard, if not gold standard, for how to put on a festival. According to uh, early Superfly projections of after they took a, a surveillance of the site, they, they only estimated a safe and efficient festival at 65,000. Not 125, not 150, not 100, 65. Well, at this point, Lang doesn't like what they're, uh, what they're sending back, the numbers they're sending. On uh, whatever date it was, it doesn't say. Lang sent an email to Dentsu expressing his displeasure, saying Superfly will not be permitted to adjust this down to 65,000, he wrote. There is no rational reason to do this, not from a safety standpoint of view, nor from a uh, customer satisfaction point of view. Lang added that he was disappointed in Superfly's lack of effort to solve the problems, writing that a little discomfort isn't cause to eliminate 35,000 potential attendees. Superfly stood firm with the 65K figure with co-founder Rick Farman calling it the safe and appropriately manageable capacity. Farman sent an especially dire message to Woodstock 50 and Dentsu, quote, we are at a critical junction on this project where our ability to produce a safe first-class event is in jeopardy. And remember, Rick Farman is one of the masterminds behind the entire Bonnaroo concept, which we found out during the conversation that me and Barry Corder and Brad Steiner had with Ken Weinstein Backstage at Bonnaroo just a month and a half ago, and oh hey, surprise, surprise! Michael Lang is uh, is not down with the guy who is producing uh, one of the more uh, successful festivals in the world. 
Michael Lang was a hell of a salesman. He was at several town hall meetings trying to sell everybody from the community where Watkins Glen uh, International Raceway was that we would take care of you. We'd make sure there was no disruptions. We'd pay for this. We'd pay for that. While half the investors had no idea what the hell he was even talking about. Again, not a surprise coming from a uh, dimwit like Michael Lang. A tug of war over attendance appeared to settle down in April when the uh, submitted permit applications with Watkins Glen were finally submitted. What they had come to the agreement was between the three, Superfly, Watkins Glen, and Woodstock 50 was at 75,000 people. The first public notice, notice or thoughts that there's a mess here was in April when the Black Keys, who were already paid about $1.5 million, dropped out, citing scheduling conflicts. Later on, drummer Patrick Carney would later tell the New York Times, quote, we realized that we didn't want our first show back to be in front of 150,000 people in a field without any control. We only want to do stuff that actually is going to be enjoyable, meaning their first show back after about a five-year hiatus from the road. The April 22nd on-sale dates, of course, came and went. Woodstock 50's early missteps made the music industry question if Lang was up for the job and could compete in far more the far more competitive 21st century world of festivals. Lang says, yeah, I heard all that. I don't know how I could have followed through anymore. I got a production company that does state-of-the-art work in Superfly. Here at my sidebar, which then you continued to question what they were doing, of course. And back to the, his quote, we did a, a miraculous job of putting together a lineup in two months that usually takes two years. Uh, in April, everything starts to be uh, falling apart uh, for the most part. It will, uh, Superfly says, will not go forward with any planning that did not align with the number that they had agreed with in the 60-70,000 range. Superfly expressed grave concerns about the feasibility of even getting a permit based on the mixed messages. Dentsu, the again, the company that's funding all this, piled on the beleaguered festival by sending a breach of contract notice on April 17th. Dentsu spent $32 million on talent so far. That was two-thirds of the original budget for the entire festival. On April 18th, the company stopped making large payments to the festival bank account. About 10 days later, it withdrew around $17.8 million, leaving a little less than $24,000 in the Woodstock 50 LLC bank account in May. We're now three or less months away from the supposed 50-year anniversary concert. Uh, and here's where finally it all starts to fall apart. Dentsu cancels in early May. They say, we're done, we're out. Lang, Michael Lang claims he had no heads up about Dentsu's announcement and said it was mind-boggling, quote-unquote, that he didn't know the news was coming. Quote, I never envisioned anybody just walking away from so much money and breaching. With that news, Superfly soon cut their ties with Woodstock 50 as well. Lang published an open letter to Dentsu saying the firm had acted dishonorably. Quote, I then learned that Dentsu illegally swept approximately $17 million from the festival bank account. These actions are neither legal nor honorable way to do business. That legal mess goes on for a while. In mid-May, Woodstock 50 soon announced a new financial advisor, Oppenheimer and Company, to help company find uh, the company find new funds. Uh, throughout the process, many who worked with Lang said he projected an air of confidence, justified or not, he was clearly on a crusade 
and the fate of Woodstock 50 was now tied in with his legacy. On June 10th, Watkins Glen International announced that partly due to lack of payment, it is withdrawing as the home of Woodstock 50. So it is completely in shambles at this point. Right after that, Jay-Z backed out. Uh, Then the last-ditch effort was to go to Vernon Downs, a horse track, uh, overall casino entertainment area of uh, middle to upstate New York. The owner of it is named Jeffrey Gurral. When he was approached with it uh, or to his uh, constituents and or to the local leaders of the area, he as soon as he put it out there, it was all of he says, quote, all of a sudden, all everybody I was involved with were not returning calls. You can make an argument that if the town approved it, something went wrong and all these people would have been voted out of office. Garal also feels like the lingering headache of Woodstock 99, which had taken place less than 30 minutes away, was an issue. So you can see where that is as it goes for another month. We're into mid-July, one month or less away from uh, from the supposed festival. On July 26, about three weeks before Woodstock 50 was scheduled to open its doors somewhere, anywhere, the Department of Health officially denied a permit for the show in Vernon Downs. There's some ridiculous talk about going to RFK Stadium in Washington, D.C., and then the reports I talked about several you know, month and a half ago about being in some suburb of Maryland at an amphitheater, it just didn't make any sense. David Crosby says, we didn't make it public, but we had already pulled out of the lineup. I would have honored the contract in the first two or three iterations because I try to do that. I don't want to do shitty business. I could have walked right from the start legally, but after the first theater, three iterations of it, it just got really silly. On July 25th, Woodstock 50 freed all of the artists from their contracts. Of course, they pretty much had to because they breached it by moving it to another state. That was a moment moment many artists were waiting for. At that point, publicly pulling out Miley Cyrus, John Fogarty, Santana, the Raconteurs, Dead & Company, all made it clear that this was a bleep show and they were not wanting to be involved with it anymore and on the way out here of this long-winded segment of the timeline of this disaster that was Woodstock 50 behind the scenes Woodstock 50 became a two-day concert then a one-day event then a benefit show complete with free tickets it was no longer a festival but just another concert in a shed but with less than two weeks to go Lang and his Woodstock 50 associates huddled on July 31st and decided the dream of Woodstock 50 was over. On that 31st of July, organizers officially canceled the festival. You can say, oh, I can admire him sticking to it. No, Michael Lang's a clown. Guy's a guy's a clown. And he's using his just absolute, ridiculously serendipitous, can't explain, makes no sense other than just to you know read the history books of, of just dumb luck of something 50 years ago as a way to, to, to as a template of how we're going to make this mess happen while all the while all the same things he did in 1969 same things he did in 1994 the same things he did in 1999 was spend and waste other people's money put other people in danger and not really change anything in the world as much as anybody will believe make you believe that he did guy is a clown and, uh, and and getting in business with him, I don't get it. It's like the guy, you know, I, hey, I can make this restaurant 
work. I can make this property work when its history for the last 20, 30 years is this building goes out of business anytime somebody puts a new restaurant or a new whatever it is here. Oh, no, I got it. I'm good. I got this. No, you don't. No, you don't. Michael Lang is good at exploiting that person's optimism. He's the consultant that says, oh, of course, yeah, we're going to make this happen. Let's open this restaurant for the 30th time. I got your back. Give me some money. Wastes it all, loses it all, and then cuts and uh, and runs. And, uh, you know, I hate to hate on something I used to hold in such cherished kind of just high regard, just, just a magical kind of thought. It really wasn't. I mean, the counterculture of the 1960s, late 1960s, was what it was with or without Woodstock. It really was. All right, that's it, and I won't do any more segments on Woodstock anytime soon. I promise you that. Coming up, a quick segment talking about, hey, we're going to have booze at a Vols game for the first time ever, at a football and basketball game. Maybe I'll actually go. More on that coming up next. And we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. Yes, we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. More of Stone on Air coming up. I'll go ahead and make sure you get another copy of that memo. At stoneonair.com. September 7th in the matchup against BYU, fans will be able to buy alcohol for the very first time. This all comes after a change in the SEC policy allowing schools to make the decision for themselves. We showed you recently the trial run of alcohol sales at Thompson Bowling Arena during an Alice Cooper concert. The new rules at Neyland will be like those at the arena. Those do include a maximum of two drinks per transaction. The drinks will be served in clear cups. Everyone wanting to buy alcohol will have to show their ID regardless of their age, and the sales will stop at the third quarter. Athletics director Philip Fulmer in a statement calls the game day experience at Neyland historic and unrivaled. And he's, quote, confident these new concessions options will aid our continued efforts to enhance that experience for Tennessee fans and visitors throughout the stadium. I mean, I guess if you have to listen to this god-awful song, you might as well listen to Fish do it, right? I mean, good Lord, what in the hell is taking so long to realize putting some alcohol sales in a college football stadium, not something that's going to just really increase the bottom line? Like, I, 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 we're finally in this new world that really actually Trump has helped out on. Nobody gives a shit about anything anymore. Oh, dude, the kids might get drunk. Are you seeing these kids? Do you see the student sections? Are you in the parking lots on Cumberland, right? Up and down Cumberland. Have you seen the strip? Are you down by this? Are you down in Jacksonville at the cocktail party? You're trying to tell me these kids aren't drunk off their ass? Potentially, maybe even more drunk than they should be because they can't get any once they get in. Well, the students don't count. I'm talking about the younger people. Oh God, it's so dumb. 
so, so, so dumb. The last time I have been to a uh, to a uh, Vols game, and I used to be a pretty big Vols, Vols fan when I was young, from like 1996, so like in high school until uh, really, I guess this was the telling time. The final game that I've been to uh, in 2005 was um, against uh, Steve Spurrier and the Gamecocks, his first game back at Neyland as a coach of the Gamecocks in 2005. It was Halloween weekend. I remember I was 25 years old. My brother went to school there, so he would have been 21 or two, still in school. And we had a big time, a big party, everybody in their costumes. Not me, but everybody else. And uh, we went to the game. And uh, me and a great friend of mine still to this day. And I uh, I was like, at halftime, like, yeah, I'm bored, man. And O'Charlie's was still a place that we, you know, it was like the cool O'Charlie's. And it's long gone now. I was like, what are we doing here, man? Like, I don't know who won. Don't care. This is boring as bleep, dude. Let's get out of here. And at halftime, we left. We went to O'Charlie's. And we drank beer and watched the game. And it was so much fun. You know, I mean, if, if if that just is a reflection on on me and 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 my dependencies, that's one thing. Uh, but it just there's something about being treated like an adult, like everybody, even children who are wanting to be treated like an adult who don't necessarily deserve it, still want it. At all ages, you want to be treated like you're uh, like you're sophisticated, like you're able to contain yourself. And going place, oh, you don't know, no drinks here. Nobody can have a drink here. Okay, well, why? So now the rest of us are going to sneak in a bottle. And I've been getting that for years. Well, why don't you just sneak in a bottle? Because I'm not paying a bunch of money to go uh, to a game I barely care about to sneak in whiskey or a, or a liquor that I don't even really want because I can't have it in a cocktail fashion that I want. Oh, I'm having so much fun mixing my drink in the pisser at this football stadium. There's nothing fun about that. Um, so, yeah, open it up. Let me go have a beer. If someone says, hey, you want a free Vols ticket? Yeah, sure. Hell, I guess I'll go. Why not? I'll go have a couple of beers. When I get bored, I'll leave. I'll go to my friend's house or go to my uh, my friends uh, I know that work there with the Cherokee Distributing now that I have uh, connections with. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, I'll do that. But this for years, like, hey, I got Vols tickets. <laughs> Good for you. Have fun with that nightmare. And it's not just Vols. It's it's every uh, uh, co- big-time college uh, a setting in the SEC anyway, and I just, you know, I think college football is just so stupid. I mean, it's fun. Like, watching football on a on a Saturday, drink a beer on a nice fall day, I mean, who doesn't like that, right? But this just fan, over-the-top fandom of watching quite literally, from my definition standpoint anyway, children play football, people you, you, men and and women, for that matter, I'm not going to discriminate. Title Nine to be damned. All, men and women playing these sports in college, children, kids, not even barely adults yet, that can't even do anything right in life. That I, I'm supposed to be shocked when they don't uh, run the route correctly, or they don't catch the football like they're supposed to, or the you know what I mean. It's just like I get it if you're involved. I get it if you're a uh, if you're an alum, I get it if your kid is involved. I get it even if, like, your cousin or your close relative is. But just as, like, hell yeah, it's Saturday. I'm watching Ohio State. All right, well, whatever. I'll see you at the Browns game then or whatever. I, I don't know. I'm a pro sports guy. Enough about that anyway. So, finally, they brought alcohol to uh, Neyland Stadium, 
and uh, Thompson Bowling Arena in Knoxville, which means and my brother lives there. I have friends. I got friends all over Knoxville. I can't wait. And my company does a, a game day party with uh, uh, Calhoun's every home game. And, and for some reason, the Vols get seven home games. It seems like every year. They're on the road four times. Seven home games and like five of them are in their first or six of them are in the first, you know, two months. So, hey, make make the game day experience better and I might show up, especially when I can go eat some barbecue and drink some Miller Lite for free at my company get together. And then I can head over to the stadium and have a couple beers there, too. You're idiots for not doing this earlier. I mean, I don't know who your constituents are within the framework of the political system inside of all these Bible Belt areas that make them think that this wasn't a good idea. Oh, the kid, the kids might drink. The kids are already drinking. But I found this today. I saw it a while back. It's not new, but I just figured it was worth doing on the way out here on the Stone on Air podcast. It is a weekly dose for August 21st, 2019. All right, next. Okay, uh, Dave, up here. Hey, how are you? Uh, thanks for coming in. As you know, Tennessee is looking at expanding to alcohol sales in Neyland Stadium this year. Oh yeah. We're bringing in vendors and giving them a sort of an audition to make sure that we have the best possible people selling. Yep, got it. Okay, great. Well, there is your potential customer. Let's see you sell a beer in Neyland Stadium. Cold beer, huh? Cold beer! You, sir! Did you know we're paying Butch Jones until 2021? What's that? Two beers? Coming right up. Uh, okay. Uh, interesting choice. Let's try it again, and this time take a different approach. Okay, okay, uh, no problem, no problem. <clears throat> Who's ready for a nice cold beer? How about you, buddy? No. Well, did you know the last time Tennessee beat Alabama, you'd have been listening to that game broadcast on a Zoom? Oh, why, yes, we do have IPAs. Okay, uh, not quite there yet, um, but hey, let's just try, try a few more. Yeah, okay, of course. Regular beer, light beer, and I have discounted tall boys if you can prove you had season tickets in 2017. Ice cold beer's going faster than John Curry's term as athletic director. Well, they're all ice cold. Heck, we've sold as many hot beers as Tennessee has Heisman winners. Why are you pouring it in a bowl? Uh, so us poor Tennessee fans can enjoy at least one bowl this season? Our research has shown that if you engage in small talk with the customer, they're more likely to make a purchase. Let's try that. <laughs> Tennessee Dave can do small talk. Oh, now that's a volunteer if I've ever seen one. How long you been a Tennessee fan, sir? Since the Kiffin years. Oh, you're gonna need something with a, with a little more of <laughs> You just tell me when. Uh, sir, tell me when. <laughs> Right. Come on, it can't be that bad. All right, all right. See the completion of the Clawson lineage. <laughs> well, that was actually, I messed that up. The completion of the Clawson lineage. All right, so that wasn't that funny. That was a little dad joke-ish, uh, but I uh, figured I'd throw it on there as I wind down the show today. I'm off to No Gallagher and Smashing Pumpkins in Atlanta. Hopefully I come back in one piece and don't have a disastrous end of the week and likely do a podcast next week as well. Let's see. Are we still in August next week? I'm trying to pull up my calendar. Of course we are. Yeah, what am I talking about? We're only the 21st right now. So the final 
a Wednesday of August next week. We'll do it again. All right. Thank you so much. Appreciate you being here. And uh, y'all have a great rest of the week. We'll do it again next week. Hey, uh, if you feel like it, rate and review. Leave a review. Haven't got one of those in a long time. I always say I wouldn't do it for you. But uh, maybe maybe this time I will say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. I will do it for you if you feel like it. All right. Y'all have a good one. See you later. Bye.